You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. We have a guest preacher this morning. Uh, Mr. Michael White is going to preach. This is his first time preaching ever. Yeah, let's give it, let's give it to him. Um, one of, the, one of the things that we want to be about here at The Well is developing and training other leaders, and uh, we, we believe it's really important for a church family not to just always hear from me as the preacher, but that there should be multiple preachers in a church family, and as we identify and, and see when God has given us that gift in other men, then we want to give them the opportunity to step up to the plate and take a swing at the ball and I've known Michael for many years. I know his love for the Lord and his love for God's Word, and uh, so I'm excited to uh, to sit under his preaching this morning. And so I want us to bow our heads and pray for Michael real fast before he dives in. So would you bow your heads with me, Father? Thank you so much uh, for your Word and uh, the gift uh, that we have of your Word, and uh, Lord, the gift that we have to hear your Word preached. Father, I pray that you would. Fill this room with your spirit so we might hear from you. I thank you for your servant, my brother, uh, Michael. God, thank you for the friendship we've shared over the years, for his love for you and his knowledge of your word and his willingness and desire to step up here behind the pulpit this morning and to preach your word. God, I pray that as you fill this place with your spirit, that you would fill him with your spirit. Give him fresh and renewed vision clarity and strength and protect him as he preaches lord i pray father we love you in jesus name amen take a brief moment consider this question who do you think you are what makes you you is it your job your home your family Something else? Take that description of yourself, put it on the back burner of your mind for now. We're going to come back to it later. Today, we're going to conduct a survey, broad bird's eye view, the theme of identity. I pray that this would lead us all to go do an in depth study of these passages and throughout the Bible. Because there's a lot, a lot of scriptures that talk about this theme. I'm sure some of you are already asking questions. What is identity? Is it important? So, why? Well, if you have your Bibles open today, go ahead and open them up to John 8.31. For those of you who don't have a Bible, uh, there are Bibles underneath your seats. Um, John 8 is on page 841. Look this morning. <laughs> um, and if otherwise, you know, you can follow along with me on the screen here. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, 
We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you will also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them, because you are not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. And you have not come to know Him, but I know Him. And if I say that I do not know Him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know Him and keep His word. My father Abraham rejoiced. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. 
Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are truth. You are life. You are light. You are love. You are everything that is good. Father, we come before you and we confess we are weak. Our spirit is willing, but our flesh holds us back. Our minds wander. Our hearts get caught up in so many other things. Father, I ask that you open the minds and the hearts of those who hear this message to really experience you, to know you, to love you, to see your beauty. Father, guard my words today. Let those that are from you take root in the lives of these people and bear much fruit. And let those that are not from you pass away into the wind, meaningless, worthless. Because anything cut off from you is worthless. Father, we yield to you today and we ask, be glorified even in the midst of our weakness because your power made perfect in weakness. You go on full display when we just can't do it, but you can. So, Father, do it today. Show up. Reveal yourselves. Reveal yourself to these people today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, having gone through this, you know, we have some answers to our questions, right? Identity can be split into two parts. Perceived identity, who and what a person considers themselves to be at the core of their being, and that question I asked you right at the start. And true identity, who and what a person really is, at the core of their being, is determined by God. Both Jesus and the Jews treat identity as being of utmost importance. So it would be wise to follow Jesus' lead here. He teaches that your thoughts, your words, your feelings, your actions flow out of your true identity, who you really are. That's kind of important, you know? I'm going to take a moment here and kind of sidebar off a little bit, you know. Think about that passage we just went through. Think about all that back and forth bantering, you know. You had Jesus making claims about his own identity and the Jews, and then the Jews making claims about their own identity and his, you know. You see this rumor mill that had been going on for well over 30 years because Jesus did not have a human father. His mother conceived him before 
she and Joseph were ever married. I mean, think about that in that day, that culture, how shameful that would have been. And the rumor mill just kept going and going. I mean, this is gossip on steroids. Not only were they saying, oh, hey, he's an illegitimate child. They said, oh, hey, you're a Samaritan. What's a Samaritan? Don't mean to be too offensive, but Samaritan's a half-breed, half-Jew, half-Gentile. And the Jews looked at Samaritans as even worse than the filthy Gentile dogs. And even more, some strains of that rumor said, oh, hey, you know, he's not just, just a Samaritan. He's the son of a Roman soldier, an occupying force, most likely the product of rape. I mean, shame upon shame upon shame. And on top of that all, hey, we think you've got a demon. Whenever Scripture talks about a person having a demon, almost always, if not always, the idea there, one of the connections there, is deep mental illness, deep mental unwellness, self-destructive and, well, yeah, behavior that's destructive self and others, someone who cannot be trusted even when their words seem sensible and reasonable, right? And then look at what Jesus is saying right back to him. You say you're sons of Abraham, but you sure ain't acting like it. No, no, you're acting like sons of Satan, sons of the devil, the chief enemy of God. And then look at what he says about himself. You know, there's some people, I'm not just talking, you know, well-known cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and whatnot. There are some even who claim to be Christians like you and I who say, Jesus never claimed to be God. So we really shouldn't treat him that way. We shouldn't think of him that way, right? Well, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Proof is in the pudding. They didn't try to kill him until he made a big, big claim. The words, I am, the name of God. You know? I mean, look at this. <laughs> he insulted them to their face horribly, saying, You're sons of the devil. That didn't push them over the edge. What pushed them over the edge is... Those two words, I am. And who else would know the context, the subtext, the history, the culture, the underlying meaning of what he was saying better than them? I mean, and these weren't just any old Jews. These were religious Jews in the space of the temple. These were devout people who knew what they were about, who knew... God's words. And this was, you know, both common people and religious leaders. And they responded to him saying that by going, we got to kill this guy. This is blasphemy, punishable by death under our laws. And it's of such an immediate thing that even though it's illegal under Roman law, we have to kill him now. 
And, you know, that's not the only place where Jesus makes claims about his identity. Over and over again, he uses the title, Son of Man. (laughs) Oh, hey, look, it's just a reference to his humanity. No, no. Son of Man is a title that connects back to Isaiah, a passage where it says that the Son of Man will come riding in on the clouds in glory. Now, in the Jewish view of the world, the Jewish idiom, the only experience they had of someone riding clouds was God. Think about that. Here he is saying, oh, I'm the son of man. I am the cloud rider. (laughs) Isn't that insane? If you heard that from somebody on the street, would you go, oh, yeah, whatever. Or would you be like, what's wrong with you? What you thinking? And this claim, this is what sealed his fate at his trial the night of Gethsemane at the house of the son of Caiaphas, the high priest. The high priest was listening to him talk and talk, and now, who do you make yourself out to be? But when he said, I am the son of man, what does the high priest do? He rips his shirt. He goes, oh my goodness, what have I heard? This is deserving of death. So you see, Jesus does claim to be God over and over and over again. And people want to kill him for it. You see, identity is a deadly, serious topic. It costs Jesus his life in a certain sense. So don't don't just take it for granted. We're going to go ahead and read through some other passages that also address this theme, and let's see what else we can learn. I'm not (laughs) going to ask you to try and keep up in your Bibles. You will notice I'm not going to go flipping through every reference in my Bible today, because (laughs) that's, that's a lot of moving around, let me tell you. Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 17 And verses 22 through 23 says this, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart that form of teaching to which you were committed. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, that is, growth in Christ-likeness, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 4 through 5 says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Think about that. Dead. Unable to do anything. Because dead people don't do things. But God, oh, what sweet words. Don't you just love it when you see those two words in Scripture? But 
God, I could make a joke about a certain song. I'm not going to do that because this is going on the internet. (laughs) So we're going to move on. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 34, and verse 41 says this, But when the Son of Man, catch that reference? When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will put the sheep on His right, and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 13, verses 24 through 26, and verse 30 says this, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. A bit of context here. A tear is a noxious weed, a worthless grass. It looks like wheat, certainly smells like it at first, but when it comes to fruition, when it's ready for harvest, what it produces is foul-tasting fruit, unfit for consumption, even by animals. So you can imagine how much of a sabotage this was and how nasty a tear is. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and then at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Colossians 1, verses 13 through 14 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Acts 26, 18 says this, To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10 says, For you once were not a people, but now, now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
what connects all these passages together? What brings all this together and makes it make sense? Each of them presents a pair of identities, descriptions of who or what a person or group of people is slash are. And notice, all of these descriptions, all of these identities are at odds with one another. There's a complete disconnect between the members of each pair. There is no middle ground, no gray space between one identity or the other, either one or the other. For the sake of simplicity, clarity, and maybe a little bit of catchiness, let's call these rival identities and list them side by side here. Hopefully you can read that. Um, these lists give us a clear contrast. Consider this first list over on your left in the black. <laughs> For those of you who don't have a personal saving relationship with Jesus as your Savior and Lord, i.e. the unsaved, this is who and what you are right now. Perk up your ears. Sons of Satan. Slaves of sin. Spiritually dead in your sins. Hellbound goats. Tares destined for the fire. Citizens of Satan's kingdom. Not a member of God's people or a recipient of his mercy. Wow, what a sobering thought. For those of you who do have that kind of relationship with Jesus, i.e. the saved, this is who and what you once were. Don't fall asleep. Don't you know, let your mind wander. This is who and what you were. And thank God you're not anymore. Is this humbling, sobering thought? Does it make you go, whoa, what happened? How did I get here? It ought to catch your attention and force a bit of seriousness into you. Consider this second list on the right in the gray. Those of you who are saved, this is who and what you are right now in Christ by God's grace. Sons of God, slaves of righteousness and of God, spiritually alive in Christ, heaven bound sheep, we destined for the barn, citizens of Christ's kingdom, a member of God's people, and a recipient of his mercy. For those of you who aren't saved yet, perk your ears up. This is who and what God would transform you into in Christ if indeed you surrender to Jesus.
by now you're probably wondering, okay, dude, what does that really mean to surrender to Jesus? How do I get from this first set of identities to this second one? This sounds a heck of a lot better, right? Let me answer that with a question. What is your response to the gospel? The good news that the life, death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus is enough. Enough, brethren, to secure your eternal destination with Him in heaven. The way the Bible depicts it, the right response, response of faith, life or death, all in belief and trust. The kind of trust you had when you sat down in your chairs this morning and said, eh, it'll hold me. The same kind of trust some of you had when you drank the coffee and you said, eh, this isn't poison, it won't kill me. <laughs> this is the kind of trust and belief that we're called to this kind of trust in Jesus Christ is only possible by the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit according to the will and calling of God the Father. And yet, we are also held responsible to answer God's calling by turning away from our sin and believing that God raised Jesus from the dead. And look, this kind of belief, all in, it's going to be evidenced by a transformed life. Observe these following passages. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about that. You've got to work long and hard to earn yourself death. Sounds like a pretty bad deal, right? Sounds like you got a really bad contract. But God, he wants to give you a gift freely, generously. Are you going to take it? Good question. John 17, verse 3 says this, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Take a moment there. Think about that word know. Not just a bit of head knowledge here. It's not just, oh, academics or intellectualism. This word, this word talks about a relational knowledge, an experiential knowledge, you know, the kind of knowledge exists between two really close friends or between a man and his wife. They know each other deeply, intimately, in ways that no one else can. This is the kind of knowing that Jesus talked about here when he says, knowing God, knowing Jesus, that is eternal life. Now, Mike, why do you bring that up? I mean, kind of a sidebar, ain't it? Well, look. What a glorious thing. It means eternal life 
doesn't have to wait until the moment we die. It doesn't have to wait until we meet our Maker face to face. Eternal life can start right here, right now. What an amazing thought that we can know our Father deeply, intimately, that it will give us new life, eternal life, life that does not end, that cannot end. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 28 says this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, made visible, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified is declared righteous as a gift by His grace through the redemption that is a release brought about by the payment of a ransom which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, that is, a satisfying of God's demand for justice in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance, the patience of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. All throughout the Old Testament we see this, perhaps most especially in the case of David. I mean, think about that. David gets a guy murdered, murdered by proxy, just so that he can hide the fact that he slept with the dude's wife. And considering their circumstances, I mean, may not have exactly been forcible rape, but definitely rape by influence. Because here's the king of the entire land. Here's the guy, the big cheese, big kahuna, coming in and saying, hey, you know, why don't you come hang out with me for a while, you know, and let's do our thing, you know. You know, and, and what does God do? Yeah, sure, he takes the child born of that sin. And <laughs> given what David says, apparently God takes that child to be with him. Because David says, I'm going to see you again one day. And I'm going to rejoice in the presence of my God with you one day. But does God kill David for his sin? According to the Old Testament law, he should have. But he didn't. <laughs> he said, I got you covered. Just wait. Wait. Keep on waiting for Christ to come and pay the price for that. So yeah. Yeah. He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting, bragging, proud talk, smack talk on the ball court? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. 
For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 8, verses 28 through 30 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Does that sound familiar? Anybody? Anybody? Too many people quote it out of context. They strip it away from core meaning. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. And just so you know, that word predestined, it means, effectively, God picked you. From before the beginning of the world, He picked you. And He said, I don't care how nasty, filthy, dirty you are, I'm picking you. Deal with it. Romans 10, verses 8 through 10 says, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Hopefully that's what you're hearing today. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14-18, through chapter 4, verses 3-4 through says this, Their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, first five books of the Bible, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, who are dying, in whose case the God of this world is blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, who's, this, who's the God of this world, church? The God of this world at this time is Satan, the one who went to Jesus and said, hey, I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. Just bow down and worship me. Jesus is like, Phew. 
What? What? You, you think you got anything on me? You, get, you think you got something I don't already have? I don't need all that because I already got all that and more. That is the God of this world who's blinded the minds of the unsaved so that they might not see the beauty of the gospel that Jesus came to save the lost, to seek them out like a shepherd looking for a lost sheep and say, I'm going to go find you. I'm going to bring you back. Acts chapter 2, verse 38 through 39. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Now, this, this is one of my favorite passages. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, his magnum opus, his Mona Lisa, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, you might notice I was so kind to underline this that. I did that for a reason. <laughs> There's a lot of people who look at this verse and they look at that that and they go, what is that that referring to? And they say, oh, hey, that that, that's referring to the grace, right? Well, in the biblical context, grace refers to unmerited or unearned favor. So let, let's assume for a moment that those people are right, right? Okay. Paul, Paul is the author of this passage, right? He was born and raised in a Hellenistic household. That means a Jewish household influenced by Greek and Roman culture. He knew Greek. He was a master of using that language. And this, this text, it's written in Greek. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, this guy, he knows the language forward and backward, up and down and all around. Why, oh why, would he bother saying that this word grace, which already has the idea of gift built in, is a gift? Why? That makes no sense. So, you know, process of elimination, we get rid of the grace and we say, ah, this, that, can't be the grace, what's left? The faith. Yes, brothers and sisters, even this faith, it's not a work that you do to earn salvation. It's not something you have to labor at. It's a gift from God. 
How amazing. God provides both the condition for salvation and all that is needed to fulfill that condition. Faith in Jesus Christ as the risen Son of God. Does it seem a bit confusing and yet awe-inspiring? As Joe's been saying these last few weeks, awesome! Does it fill your heart with joyful gratitude? I pray that it does. I pray that the goodness, the truth, and the beauty of God and the gospel takes hold of our hearts, moves us, to a heartfelt obedience, worship, and adoration of Him, that we get put into a position where we go, whoa. Joe's made this picture a couple of times about, you know, what it would be like, uh, what it is like for those who are married and what it will be like for those who one day will be married. Watch your wife future wife coming down the aisle and the only thing that can pop up in your mind is whoa amazing beautiful I don't even have words anymore is that the kind of feeling the kind of sense that takes hold of you when you think about all that God has done for you I hope so Now, this next little bit (laughs) has inspired, in a sense, to go into this uh, by this quirky little yellow book with a seemingly heretical title, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart by J.D. Greer. Wow, that sounds kind of scandalous. And, you know, and this isn't to show, throw shade at pastors who, through the ages, have used this idea, this model of the sinner's prayer to help lead people to make a response to the gospel. But it's like the Lord's Prayer, you know. It, we're not meant to memorize a thing and then repeat it back and forget the meaning and just... Robotic, blah, blah, blah. No, no. God doesn't care about the exact words that you use when you talk to Him and when you respond to the gospel. He cares about the response itself. In other words, you've admitted your sins, your ongoing failure to hit the bullseye of God's perfection to Him, believed and wholeheartedly trusted that Jesus died in your place for your sins, and that God raised Jesus from the dead as proof that sin, Satan, death, and the world system have been conquered, crushed under His overwhelming might, and surrendered to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And that's enough. That's enough brothers and sisters. You have responded rightly in faith, the gospel, and God's calling, and have been given a whole new identity in Christ. 
If that's not your response, then you're still dead in sin, stuck in this identity of a stubborn, unrepentant rebel at war with God. You know, I'm going to make a reference back to that song we sang just a little bit earlier. You know, when Jesus rose up from that grave, death was arrested, and Jesus perp walked him. Think about that. You know, how shameful, how embarrassing it is when you get perp walked and everybody sees your picture on TV and goes, oh, look at that guy, you know, look at what he did. This is what Jesus did to death. He put death to shame as he rose up from that grave. Think about that. That is the mighty God that we have on our sides if we have that personal relationship with him, that intimate knowledge of him. Okay, okay, Mike, you know, ramble, 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 go here, go here, do this, do that, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Why does this matter to us today? How does it connect to the gospel? Remember Romans eight twenty-eight through 29, how it said, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, Oh, look, that means that God doesn't just save us and go, eh, good enough, going on my way, doing my thing. No, God saves us so that we would become more and more like his son, <laughs> Jesus. Wow, wow. I get to be like that guy, the guy that everybody still talks about 2,000-some years later? Not quite 2,000, but... Pretty dang close. Give it another decade and we'll be good. So, okay, we're supposed to look like Jesus. What does that look like? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anybody? Anybody? John 13, verses 1 through 5 says this. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God, and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. This deserves a little bit of context too. Israel, from many hundreds of years before this time and during this time was basically a farming and ranching community. Kind of like Sand Hills of Nebraska. 
where I graduated high school, right? You know, think about that. Sand, dust, dirt, animals doing their business anywhere and everywhere. And people of that day, they didn't have closed-toed shoes. <laughs> At best, they had Roman shoes, which were just a strap of leather on the foot and some laces up the leg. Most of them had what we call today flip-flops. And the poor, the underprivileged, as some might say, they didn't even have that. They went barefoot. So think about that, you know. You got a group of 12 guys and one teacher walking around, most likely barefoot, because these guys were not, not wealthy, getting all that gunk and goop and dirt and filth anywhere and everywhere. And something had to be done about it, right? Normally, the host of the home would be responsible for taking care of that problem as a show of generosity. But do you think the guy did it himself? Anybody? No. No. Of course he wouldn't do that. He would go find a slave, and not just any old slave, the lowest guy on the totem pole, the guy that maybe gave you the stink eye earlier that morning, or maybe the gal that was mouthing off about, oh, I got to do this and I got to do that today, and rah, 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 stop giving me instructions. He would go find that person, the lowest person in the household, and he'd say, hey, I got a job for you. You're not going to like it, but it is a job. So think about that. Think about that picture. Jesus being totally secure in his true identity and who he really was, where he came from and where he was headed and how he was headed there, mind you, because this is directly on the path to the cross. He models for us what's called agape love. It's self-sacrificial divine love. It's the kind of love that the Greek philosophers looked at and said, humanity is not capable of that. No way. It's the ideal, but, I mean, how can you expect that of me, you know? And he models this kind of love and humility to his disciples, including us today, by getting down on his knees Clothed with only a towel, and he proceeds to wash their dirty, nasty, stinky, filthy feet. Even though he knew he was about to be betrayed by one of his own. Wow. I mean, you'll do nice things for your friends. You know, you'll help them out from time to time, but can you imagine that, you know? You know that one of these 12 dudes is effectively going to stab you in the back, and you're like, eh, doesn't matter. I'm still going to wash his feet. I'm still going to make him feel known and loved and welcome and respected and the recipient of generosity and hospitality. Wow. What a savior. 
So what now? Right? Tied it all back together, and we've shown that all this is about us becoming like Jesus. So how do we do that? How do we put that into practice? Well, for those of you who don't have that personal relationship with Jesus yet, you've got to start by responding rightly in faith to the gospel. You have to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Step one, but end the set of steps. This is only an abbreviated list, so don't think you know you can just check mark your check boxes and call it a day. You're not getting off that easy. Ask God to show you in a personal way what He thinks of you, and spend time in the Bible looking for that, looking for verses that touch on identity, that tell you what God says about his people. In the Old Testament, God talked about the nation of Israel, his people, as the sheep of his pasture, the flock of his hand. And he also called them a luxurious vine. He also called them other terrible things. I'm not going to get into that because, again, this is going on the internet and we can let that wait until we go through that book. And then in the New Testament, over and over again, you see the writer saying, beloved, brother, saint, dear little children, and other things too, you know. This theme, it's all throughout the Bible, and it all points back to Jesus. So let that speak to you. Let that give you a new freedom and a new life. You aren't chained up by your shame, by your guilt anymore. Strive to bring your perceived identity, what you think and say, yourself, how you think about yourself, into alignment with what God says about you. You remember at the start where I said, hey, you know, how would you describe yourself? Right here. This is where we connect back into that and say, hey, is this matching up with what God says about you? Not <laughs> Might want to work on that. And yes, fight shame sense that there's something wrong with you rather than what you've done by clinging to what God says about who and what you really are now in Christ. Fight pride, too. And this includes false humility by remembering what you once were and how God has transformed you in Christ and is transforming you moment by moment, day by day. Sanctification word comes back, growth in Christ's likeness. We are already Christ like in the eyes of God, and yet we're growing into that. It's this theme of already not yet that shows up over and over again in the Christian life. You're there, but you also got to get there. Weird, right? <laughs> Encourage fellow believers by affirming their true identity. Acknowledge specific ways that they display Christ-likeness. 
Treat them as fellow children and heirs of the king. Because that's what you are. You are heirs of the king of kings, the lord of lords, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who spoke everything into being, the one who one day is going to take back what belongs to him. Show the unsaved grace and mercy. They're victims, slaves of their own sin, blinded by the God of this world. They need Jesus to save them. And guess what? You once stood in their shoes as enemies of God. How humbling. Shouldn't that give you just a touch of empathy for them? To go, I'm no better than you. And God just, I'm going to pick you. And I'm going to pick you. And I'm going to pick you. Deal with it. In conclusion, what we are called to is to start living and acting like who we really are. When you sin, not if, when you screw up, when you fail to be perfect, you're going to fail to be perfect. Stop kidding yourselves. You are going to fail. Know this. When you do fail, you are not acting out of who you really are. You're actually acting out of character. Think about how, that, how jarring that is when you're watching a movie and you get a sense of a certain actor and a certain character. And, oh, hey, you know, this character's like this, and they do this, and they do that, so I can expect them to say this kind of thing in this kind of tone. And then, 90-degree <laughs> turn, they just suddenly start acting completely differently. And you're like, wait, what? What? I thought you were the funny man. Why are you so serious now? Or the serious guy starts cracking jokes, and you're like, what? What? I thought you were all sad and ready for the world to end and burn. Why are you cracking wise now? But that's exactly the kind of person you're being when you walk in sin, when you choose not to live like who you really are. But brothers and sisters, I encourage you today, grow in Christ-likeness. Strive to live out who you really are and know that you know, that is what obedience to God looks like, that He's going to give you the strength to do that if you rely on Him. That you really can be all He has called you to be you surrender to him day by day, moment by moment. There's a song it's by a group some of you may know, probably a lot of you don't know, called For Him. A song called The Measure of a Man. What that song tells us is that the measure of man it's what's 
in his heart, his true identity, what God has already made him to be. You don't have to worry about what Pastor Joe says about you or Dave or Bryce or anybody, you know? Especially don't worry about that guy Will in the back there, you know? He's a weird, wacky guy, and he'll give you guff. But you know what? That doesn't matter. What matters is who God says you are. And he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for God's own possession, his prized treasure, right? Think about that. Let that sink in. Let it change your life, how you act, how you talk, how you think and feel about yourself and the people around you, and about God himself. Let it change all of you. Let it transform you. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these precious, precious words that give life and freedom and hope sense of newness. Father, please let the truth and the beauty of your word take root in these people's lives. Please be glorified by everything that you're doing inside of them. Because, Father, it's a beautiful thing to see people respond to your word when they begin living like who they truly are, you. Father, let your word bear much fruit. Don't let it come back void. You promised that it wouldn't. So I'm calling on you now. Fulfill your promise. I know that you are faithful. I know that you are true. I know that you do not lie. So when you say that we are this, we are this. What a glorious thought. Be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.